it seems an appropriate place to be making this introduction on the set of Golden Boy. It's a very great pleasure and a privilege to welcome to England and to the National Theatre a man whose name is synonymous with American drama, Arthur Miller. He's in the country for the publication of three books published by Methuen, Death of a Salesman in Beijing, his 70s drama, The Archbishop's Ceiling, and two one-act plays under the title Two-Way Mirror. I'm sure he won't thank me for reminding him of the fact, but in fact, he's been writing plays now for nearly 50 years, rather longer than you probably suspect, uh, picking up his first prize while he was still at university. But things didn't always go quite as straightforwardly or as easily as that. In the late 1930s, he submitted a play to the Federal Theatre in America. Shortly afterwards, it was closed down by Congress for suspected communist subversion. In 1944, 40 years ago, his first play opened on Broadway. It was called The Man Who Had All the Luck, which, as it turned out, might have been rather better named since it closed after four days, which is scarcely the most auspicious of beginnings for the man who was to become one of the major forces in modern drama. Unsurprisingly, he decided to pack it in and try his hand as a novelist, and he did indeed write a successful novel. But thankfully, he decided to have another crack at the theater, and the result was All My Sons. It was a play about war profiteering and a certain kind of self-righteousness which was masquerading as idealism. It was highly successful, and it seemed to touch a very sensitive area in the American psyche. But then so have all of his plays. There are certain writers whose work, in some sense, seems to embody the public issues of their day, translating them into terms of the private conscience. And with plays like Death of a Salesman, The Crucible, A View from the Bridge, After the Fall, and The Archbishop's Ceiling, Arthur Miller is plainly such a person. On occasions, he has addressed those public issues at some risk to himself and has shown some courage in doing so. But not the least remarkable thing about these plays is the extent to which they've been embraced around the world. All My Sons has broken all records in Israel. Warren Mitchell gave a memorable performance of Death of a Salesman on this very stage. And in Shanghai, the crucible was seen as a comment on the cultural revolution. Who is more American than Willie Loman, being played on Broadway at the moment by Dustin Hoffman. But last year, with his suitcase full of samples and his desire to be liked, indeed to be well-liked, he walked onto the stage of a theater in Peking. I love to think of what Senator McCarthy would have made of that. <laughs> and tonight, Arthur Miller will be reading from the log which he wrote during that production, where he functioned not only as playwright, but also as director. And as you'll hear, not the least remarkable thing about that document is that it isn't just an account of a particular production mounted in a distant country. To me, it seems to add up to a moral history of two cultures. 
And inevitably, therefore, uh, it also tells us something about the man who wrote it, a man who has not only given us some of the finest drama of the 20th century, but who has brought to his career as a writer, as you'll see, a wit, a modesty, and a grace, which is rare in any profession. He must also be the tallest playwright in the world. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Arthur Miller. Thank you very much. It's a great thing to be here in your national theater. I wish we had one. Uh, and maybe one day, when we're all very old, we will. I'm going to read uh, pieces, because uh, the time is short, of this log, which I wrote every afternoon uh, we worked from, seven, uh, from 9 to 12 every morning and from 7 to 10 every night, so I had the afternoons to uh, go bicycling through Beijing with my wife, who speaks Chinese and could uh, carry on with the people. And uh, I could also come back and work on this, uh, trying to keep the production straight in my head. Uh, and this is the result. Uh, there will be no, specific, uh, no special continuity, perhaps, but I think you'll get the idea. One in four human beings is Chinese. This can be an awkward circumstance when, for example, one speaks of one of the world's greatest writers or actors or painters, and he or she is utterly unknown to the Chinese. And since the great people of Chinese culture are nearly equally unknown outside China's borders, the isolation of this great people seems as incredible as the parochialism of both sides. As a consequence of the cultural quarantine placed on all foreign works and influences in China during the Cultural Revolution and for more than a decade, the theater artists and audiences, when we first went to China, in 78, were aware only of the forms of Chekhov, Gorky, Tolstoy, Ibsen, and their Chinese imitators. And these only because of the Sino-Soviet connection of the early 1950s. In the 1960s, under the terrible reign of Jiang Qing, Mao's wife and a former actress, only eight so-called permissible plays were allowed to be shown, and these were more like political demonstrations than imaginative works about real human beings. During a visit to China in 78, I met Cao Yu, the head of the Beijing People's Art Theater, and Ying Rochan, a director, as well as one of that theater's leading actors, both of them with some personal experience in the United States, and eager to begin opening their own country to the post-World War II international repertoire. But this was easier said than done. Neither they nor anyone else knew whether and how much the Chinese audience could understand Western plays after so many years of such total isolation. 
There was also a question about the Chinese actor trained in an unrealistic style that was at its worst melodramatic and intolerably overemphatic compared with understated Western acting, which of course developed out of the far more realistic playwriting of Europe and America and out of a very different cultural tradition. Ying Chang had read widely in Western literature, descended as he was from a line of scholars, and Cao Yu had spent a year in America in the 1930s and had fallen in love with O'Neill's work. Both men had suffered greatly from the persecutions under the Cultural Revolution and were in 1978 with the ouster of the so-called Gang of Four eager to reach out to the West for a new beginning. Their ultimate object, however, was to investigate Western playwriting in order to begin the search for new contemporary Chinese theatrical forms and acting styles. Arriving as a tourist in 1978, I soon realized that the writers, directors, and actors I was meeting were trying to tell me something that in my naive and disinformed state, I only gradually caught on to. Almost without exception, they had only recently emerged from long terms in either prison or exile, and some had lost wives and friends during the previous decade. Cao, then in his early 70s, and as I said, the head of the Beijing People's Theater, had been pulled out of his position and was turned into a gatekeeper for some years. And Ying had spent years raising rice. Like the other artists I was meeting, they knew nothing of me or of any other American playwright after O'Neill, or for that matter, of Europeans much after Gorky. In the next two years, that is 79, 80, 81, Cao and Ying made a trip to the United States together, and between them, they would form a notion of the works their isolation had deprived them of knowing. It's interesting that in 79, they were talking about doing a production of All My Sons, but with the passing of merely one more year, they changed their minds and wanted Death of a Salesman. In that short period, they'd come to realize that with China's new opening to the West, the audience might conceivably have become sophisticated enough to follow salesmen whose style was entirely innovative for them. What still remained in great doubt was whether they could mount salesmen without some outside help. And this finally led them to insist that I come to China to direct it. Naturally, I was astonished at the idea at first, how could one hope to direct a cast without being able to talk to them? Worse yet, because it was more than 30 years since China had even known a rudimentary commercial civilization, how could I hope to create on the stage the realities of a kind of life that had no existence in contemporary Chinese memory? Willie Loman, after all, had sprung out of a world of business ambition, a society infected with the success fever. China was more than 90% peasant, and most living Chinese had been taught proletarian socialist values, the very antithesis of those that Willie strives for. The whole effort might end in calamity. I finally backed into a decision to attempt the production. This book is based on the log I kept each afternoon in the spring of 83 between the morning rehearsals, as I said, and the evening. Today, March 21st, I met the cast for the first time. 
Since we arrived only last night, Ying Chang decided wisely that I must schedule only a morning session for today. The actors did not seem any more tense than an American cast on the first day, but it's still hard to judge their feelings. One has only their controlled expressions to go by. I'm like a deaf man searching their eyes for emotions, which finally I'm unable to read. I realize as I write now that I'm still jet-numbed. The frontal lobes die a little after 24 hours in the air. I'm convinced we leave parts of our souls above the clouds. Anyway, I did address them in a rather formal conference room from the end of a long table lined with two rows of armchairs. I'd not retained one of their names, although we had all shaken hands at the airport yesterday. But that seems weeks ago and far away. One of the questions I asked, sensing that they were too respectful of the so-called foreign expert to open up at this early stage, was whether there was anything in the play that stood out as related to Chinese habits, practices, or beliefs, figuring that I would start from some common ground if, in fact, it existed. There was a dead silence. <laughs> Is it that they don't expect the director to ask, but to tell them what to think and do? I don't know. But the ploy certainly got me nowhere. They even seemed embarrassed. Were they? Ying Chang then explained that they had been reading the play together for several days and were still forming ideas about it in their minds. In short, I concluded, they did not understand it. I've not prepared a production approach. It would have been fruitless to try when I could not even imagine my cast or how they might react to anything. I have to trust my instincts, and I find myself talking about what is really on my mind at this point, the physical and cultural locale of the play. First off, I recall a couple of plays about Westerners that we saw in our last visit to China in 78, and how appalling it was to see actors made up with chalk white faces and heavily rounded eyes, walking with heavy, almost loutish gait, as they think Europeans and especially Russians do, <laughs> and worst of all, wearing flaxen or very red-haired wigs that to us seemed to turn them into Halloween spooks. <laughs> the first thing I want to discuss with you, I begin, is the problem of how you are to act like Americans. The answer is very simple, and I urge upon you to try as hard as you can to believe what I say. You must not attempt to act like Americans at all. The laughter is somewhere between confused disbelief and nervous curiosity. The way to make this play most American, I tell them, is to make it most Chinese. The alternative is what? You will try to imitate films you've seen, correct? They nod and laugh. But those films are already imitations, so you will be imitating an imitation. Or maybe you'll try to observe how I behave and imitate me. But this play can't work at all. It can easily be a disaster if it's approached in the spirit of cultural mimicry. I can tell you now that one of my main motives in coming here is to try to show that there is only one humanity, that our cultures and languages set up confusing sets of signals, and these prevent us from communicating and sharing one another's thoughts and sensations. But at the deeper levels where this play lives, we are joined in a unity that is perhaps biological. 
I'm not an anthropologist, and I can't predict what we will prove through this production, if anything. But nothing at all will come of it unless you are emotionally true to your characters and the story. If you are, I'm betting that the cultural service, surface will somehow take care of itself, although I can't be sure at this point what it will appear to be. Now then, to be specific, there will be no wigs. A loud burst of laughter that I'm not sure I understand, but I join in anyway. <laughs> I'm not even sure they believe I'm serious. I glance at Ying Ro Chang beside me, who seems to be looking slightly uneasy. And I see now that they are watching him for a sign of my real intention. But nothing comes from Ying. He's resolutely refusing to intervene. Ying Ruchang had wisely prevailed on me not to try to work today, having made the Trans-Pacific trip himself a few times, so we sort ourselves on the long row of chairs and proceed to feel each other out. Once more, I press the question of their relationship to the play, and the young actor who's cast as happy, the Loman's second son, raises his hand. One thing about the play, he says, that is very Chinese, is the way Willie tries to make his sons successful. The Chinese father always wants his sons to be dragons. There's a ripple of laughter. You mean he wants them to compete and excel over others? Oh, yes. I'd not expected this to emerge so soon, not in China. There's another China here than the one I glimpsed five years ago and the one I have read about. In those societies, the leveling dogma could never have been so openly contradicted nor would it have been greeted with such free laughter. However, in that laughter, I sense a recognition of the newness of the change. And I'm not sure if the laughter is also nervous, as though a moral rule had been nudged. In the crosstalk that follows, the other actors reinforce Happy's observation from their own experience. But while they come up with no new information, I understand that they're trying to tell me that they do relate to the play, that it is not too exotic for them. Thus, we are drawn a little more together. I appreciate their effort and try to indicate it to them. Now, a midge of a young woman appears with costume sketches, gouache drawings that are remarkably good. On my complimenting her, Ying repeats with a wry laugh in which all of them join that the costume department is best at doing 1940s clothes since that was the last era that Western plays were done in China. <laughs> Everything had closed down on them afterward. But now I realize that he's referring now to the revolution itself, which took place in 49, not merely the cultural revolution of the mid-1960s. Thus, the thread of continuity that I am picking up with this production was broken precisely when Death of a Salesman was written in 1949 a coincidence that seems fateful now and rather strange. The decor of this rehearsal room is also something to ponder in its basic military brownness fit for a barracks. The whole building actually was designed by a Chinese architect in the 50s during the period of alliance with the Soviet Union and is a featureless block of brown stucco with obligatory Roman pediments here and there and gives off the breadth of the cemetery vault like English boys' schools, <laughs> and causes one to reflect on the ugliness of most theaters in the world, including Broadway's. 
The only lovely ones are some of Europe's Baroque structures, like those in Prague, for example, or the Bolshoi in Moscow, or above all, the Josefstadt in Vienna, which did not forget the idea of play in favor of institutionalized authoritarian real estate. We were mostly milling about today, observing one another from two opposite sides of the world, but I learned that during the Cultural Revolution, some 600 young militants were housed in this and another rehearsal room year after year. The toilets must have been in marvelous shape with such a mob. How did they rehearse here? I must find out more. Our first reading on March 22nd. By 10 o'clock, we have all assembled, the whole cast seated around an ample room in armchairs, scripts in their hands. There's a moment of dread as Linda, played by Julin, says the first line, Wheelie! <laughs> the first surprise is how easy it is for me to follow the scene in my Penguin paperback. <laughs> it is a triumph of Ying's translation. Even the rhythms seem the same. The flows to the peaks and the slopes down toward the silences. In a few minutes, it's obvious that Ju Lin, our Linda, and Ying will easily seem related, husband and wife, and of this particular class of people. I can't believe they have come this far in a few rehearsal days. Ying hardly looks at the script, and she only a little more often. What am I going to do with six weeks of rehearsal time? <laughs> Zhu Lin is an actress of awesome experience in classic Chinese as well as modern plays, a heavyweight in Ying's words. She already knows she must keep Willie from wandering too close to the edge, affects her happiness with his positive moments, insinuates the truth when he can't bear hearing it, always reaching a hand out as to a child who can't walk without falling down. I can detect no trace of the declamatory style in either of them, something I'd feared and still do. On the contrary, seated side by side in chairs, they seem to create the Loman's bedroom. Ying has a kind of absolute control that brings Olivier to mind. He simply does what is called for, easily, directly, effortlessly. But a few of his shifts of temper are repetitious, and we shall have to work on those. The shape of the first scene does not yet exist, but the main thing is almost palpable, the truth of where the Lomans are with each other as a couple. The reading approaches a red performance in that they already possess consistent attitudes and are not merely groping. What gratifies me is the absence of the distance I'd suppose that would separate them from the feelings in the roles. But whatever is lacking, it is never intimacy with their own feelings. Or so it seems. If they were merely posing, imitating Americans, I don't think I could follow every speech as easily as I do. I've been catching a certain tone of condescension toward Willie's character, coming from Linda and Willie, from him especially from time to time. Perhaps it is unconscious or possibly I misunderstand, but it came at me yesterday and again two or three times today, an indefinable but dangerous attitude that could lead to a satiric interpretation, which could leave Ying Ro Chang unable to sustain the role the whole length of the play. I want to say a few things about the play and Willie now, I announce. They become silent quickly. It is now clear, incidentally, 
that they normally discuss a play for days and sometimes weeks before trying even to begin to do scenes, and like all actors, would, up to a certain point, much prefer interesting general discussions to hard work. <laughs> but I'm coming to realize that in this type of theater, there is no rush to do anything. You are all aware, I'm sure, that Willie is foolish and even ridiculous sometimes. He tells the most transparent lies, exaggerates mercilessly, and so on. But I want you to see that the impulses behind him are not foolish at all. He can't bear reality. And since he can't do much to change it, he keeps changing his ideas of it. I'm very close to ideology here. I note some agreement, but it is uneasy. Charlie is especially wrapped and unable, I believe, to come down on the side of my argument. But the thing is, the one thing he's not, I continue, is passive. Something in him knows that if he stands still, he will be overwhelmed. These lies and invasions of his are his little swords with which he wards off the devils around him. But his activist nature is what leads mankind to progress, isn't it? It can create disaster, to be sure, but progress also. People who are able to accept their frustrated lives don't change conditions, do they? So my point to you is that you must look behind his ludicrousness to what he's actually confronting. And that is as serious a business as anyone can imagine. There is a nobility, in fact, in Willie's struggle. Maybe it comes from his refusal ever to give up. Silence. It worries me they're never having seen it in this light, the character of this screwball. Quite probably they've been moving toward a satiric interpretation, or at least one that would let them off the hook as actors and the audience as well. I see now why Ying was so insistent that I must come and direct this play. And he is especially still, especially open to this apparently novel line on the play, although I have no doubt he has always seen the role as basically a tragic one. March 23. I decide to begin our first attempt at an acting rehearsal with the card playing scene. First, because it involves what I think are our two most accomplished performers, whose success in it, if it begins to show signs of life, will encourage the others and second, because it is a sitting down scene that involves a minimal amount of blocking so that they and I can concentrate on their characters. It is also because Uncle Ben has much importance in it, and I find myself more and more baffled by something impenetrable about the actor playing Ben. Perhaps it's his absurdly fierce eyes with those half-curled creases of ferocity at the outer corners. So Ying Ro Chang and Charlie sit at the kitchen table and I take a chair a few feet in front of the set and immediately we have the problem of how to play casino. <laughs> the game indicated in the script whose rules I forgot in high school. <laughs> Lee Cobb and Howard Smith, the original performers, were both fanatic gamblers, so no one had to tell them anything. <laughs> so I confess to the two actors that I have forgotten the game and wonder if they know a Chinese card game that they can work into the lines instead. The only requirement being that with a certain line, Willie has to break up the game by yelling, that's my bill, unable to continue talking to Charlie once his vision of his brother Ben has moved into the room. We could play gin, 
Would that be all right? Ying asks. I said, you know how to play gin? He says, well, we've been playing gin for 6,000 years. <laughs> I see no reason why they can't do that, and he and Charlie sit down and proceed to work on a gin game that can use up a certain specific number of plays, each connected to a line of dialogue, until an ace is played and Willie can claim, can claim it. The whole complicated business takes them a matter of minutes. In the original production, it took about half a day. And I'm so surprised that I congratulate them both. Oh, God, Ying laughs. He and I did nothing for three and a half years but played gin under a tree all day. <laughs> During the Cultural Revolution, we were both shipped off to a cadre school to raise rice. We can play gin together with our eyes closed. <laughs> this gets us into a question I've been wondering about as to exactly how the Cultural Revolution had affected this theater. It was, it turned out, absurdly simple. All work had simply stopped for years. The whole company was simply kept off the stage, but they were not stricken from the payroll. So the actors were frustrated and bored out of their heads, but less than desperate. Chang Ching, Mao's wife, and her entourage stopped all theatrical productions and sent directors, authors, and entire cast to the pig farms and rice fields for the rest of their lives. We do not need them, she actually said. In her eight permissible plays, the good people were clearly set apart from the bad, and the very notion of any inner division in human beings was quite simply outlawed. China was to be a country of good people, and good people do not read books and think they know what is good for them simply because they are good and so on. Ying thinks that this practice of continuing to pay salaries to people thrown out of their offices and professions all over the country is what kept such social peace as there was in China. But did the theater close, I wondered. Oh, no, no, Ying laughs. Chang Ching staged her eight permissible plays. But with what actors? Why, he said, the Beijing opera actors who never know what's really happening anyway. <laughs> They rarely do. They're taken for training at the age of eight and never get an education in anything else. Rather like ballet dancers. They didn't think it particularly odd that a hundred actors were hanging around back here year after year. And so in this very rehearsal room, where we played a lot of gin year after year until they shipped us off, as he said, they are playing gin again. And this is why they had worked out the scene in no time at all. With these thoughts in the background, I stood there watching Charlie and Ying working out the card game dialogue, matching it with their plays, and it seemed obvious why, China, why Charlie has, from my first introduction to it, appeared so right for the part, although a bit too ascetic physically, not crude enough perhaps. It's that there has been a kind of mutual understanding between him and Ying from the outset. And now as they sit across the table from each other under the gray light from a high row of small windows near the ceiling on one wall, I feel a magical confluence of history's unaccountable accidents that this play, written and produced in the very same year as China's revolution, should provide the occasion for these two actors to use an expertise that they so unwillingly learned and fruitlessly practiced year after pointless year and in this very same room. Arthur, I think might be a good idea. Oh.
here I was just getting started and we've got to stop. Uh, if uh, you have any questions for me, I'll sit here and he'll tell me what they are. We're <laughs> Now, this is slightly difficult to handle, partly because I can hardly see some of you. But if you would like to indicate a question by holding up your hand, I'll identify you and then relay to other people the question in case they can't hear it. And although I haven't asked you, Arthur, I presume you'll take questions on anything, not simply on oh, yeah. salesmen in Beijing. <laughs> yes, the gentleman down in the second row. Was that? Could you hear that at the back at the top? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, there have been all sorts of consequences. Some of them are institutionalized. Uh, some of the laws that were passed at that time remain. Uh, in fact, I was just involved uh, three weeks ago with an international pen attempt to get repealed a uh, so-called McCarran Act which was passed under the inspiration of McCarthy, which uh, makes it possible to keep people out of the United States because of the ideas that they hold. And people like uh, Gabriel Mar Marquez, the great Latin American novelist, uh, there's a long list that I don't want to try to remember at the moment, of uh, writers and scientists and so on. Uh, Graham Greene, for example, was refused entry at one point, under that law. Uh, that's one of several, but there were also some good things came of it. I think people became conscious of the fact that they were vulnerable to hysteria. And there is a, uh, a tendency now to hold back before they go crazy. Uh, again. Do you bear any personal scars from that period? Uh, I suppose I am uh, more sensitized as a result of that period to any threats to uh, liberty both at home and other countries. And uh, you can call those scars, but uh, I, th I think that's what I feel I got out of it. Gentlemen, right over in the aisle, yes. The question was whether the position on censorship in China has improved and how it could be related to the McCarthy period in the United States. <clears throat> I'm told that it has improved. Uh, they say now that nobody remains who has the prestige of Mao Zedong to simply on his own word close a play or prevent the publication of a book. Uh, that's probably exaggerated. There is censorship, although many of them deny it. But it's not just censorship of the government, it's censorship of the sensibilities of people. Uh, just there is here. There's certain things that we won't accept being said on a stage and be disgusted by them.
they say that the government is not in the censorship business now, and I'm reporting that as faithful as I can, as faithfully as I can. It's hard for me to believe that it's that good, but they seem to feel very positive about it at this moment. As a comparison to McCarthyism, you have to remember one thing. As bad as it was under the McCarthy time, there remained intact a body of, of custom and law which has never existed in China, either during the communist regime or before. China is a one-party state. If the party decides tomorrow morning, in its wisdom, that it has had enough of uh, Arthur Miller or uh, anybody, that's it. There will be no appeal. The system of appeals in the West, the system of responses by the citizens, doesn't exist in China. Now, they are aware of this now. They formally denied it. I wrote a book in 1979 in which I said this, and there was a big outcry among Americans who were favorable to China. And now the Chinese are saying they don't have a legal system that permits a regularized, legalized response by the citizen to the government. Now, that's because fundamentally it's a one-party state. In our systems, you can rely finally on the out-of-power party to make a noise. And since there's no out-of-power party, you're left all by yourself. There should be no confusion about this. Uh, it can become, as it did in Czechoslovakia with some writers there, as it is in, in Russia, it's a different ballgame when you have no built-in right of reply. Now, what McCarthy did was by bullying and the brilliant use of the media, he violated the rights of reply. And it wasn't until a few very courageous people began to utilize the existing rights of reply that he gradually was whittled down. But those rights did exist. My argument then was that they weren't using the rights. We always had them. They were in the Bill of Rights, the American Constitution. Uh, but those Bill of Rights don't exist in China. That's the difference. Someone right at the very back in the light. Yes. Uh, I believe what he's asking is, was the uh, run of death of salesmen affected by the anti-pollution campaign? Uh, there's a cultural <laughs> pollution or spiritual pollution, anti-spiritual pollution campaign that went on I guess it's six months ago, maybe a year. Uh, but it didn't affect not only salesmen, it didn't affect most things. What happened was China is governed by groups of factions. And at one moment there, a faction that would like to have gone back to the Mao times evidently managed to collect enough allies in the government to launch this campaign against foreign works, especially, and works uh, that criticized Mao and uh, works that they regarded as being counter-revolutionary. However, the leadership of the party had to turn this off because it got dangerously close to where they were before, and also because there was terrific resistance among the people who understood what this meant and they didn't want any more of it. So it was a short-lived reversion 
to the old Mao time. However, this is not to say it couldn't happen again. They say it won't because they've learned their lesson, and I hope to God they're right. The lady at the back who I interrupted before. The question, if you couldn't hear it at the back, is that uh, Arthur's plays tend to be tend to engage moral issues. And is there a predominant moral issue today that cries out for that kind of approach? I'm sure there are many, but I found that uh, what i am become more and more fascinated by is the question of uh, uh, reality and what it is and whether there is any and how one invites it into oneself. And that's a moral issue, finally, but I don't want to get into theology here. Uh, but that's where I'm thinking these years. How did the Chinese audiences react to the production of Death of a Self? Well, it was anything, everything that one could uh, dream of. They were, uh, as it turned out, there was absolutely no screen, no cultural uh, screen between them and the play. It worked precisely as I had hoped it would uh, and had no reason to believe it would uh, by not allowing them to turn themselves into spooks by making them act as Chinese. The Chinese audience uh, had an empathic response to them, so they felt that they were up there. And uh, it had the longest run, I believe, of any play, period. Uh, 82 continuous performances. They usually go about three weeks or three and a half weeks before they're put into a repertory. Uh, this is now in the permanent repertory of that theater and presumably will go on for the next 4,000 years. <laughs> Gentleman in the balcony with the beard, yes. <laughs> Are you Willie Lerman, Arthur? Well, if I were, I wouldn't know. <laughs> uh, a writer, I think, distributes himself among various characters in his plays. If you can't feel somebody's personality, problems, life as your own, then you can't make him live on the stage. The greatness of, let's say, a Dickens or a Shakespeare is that they could be so many different people. It's almost inconceivable. Uh, so, of course, I'm, he's part of me and I'm part of him. Uh, and anything I wrote is, in that respect, my autobiography. The lady in pink. The question is that, for certain critics, uh, the Aristotelian unities are important to your plays. Uh, how important are the classics to you as a generating force? Well, they used to be... Uh, I, I think I was uh, bowled over by Greek plays when I was in college. And uh, I think that that had a tremendous influence on my early work. Probably on all of it. Does the same thing apply to the chorus? Did, did that matter to you? Uh, curiously enough, I have a play now at this late date, which is just open in California, 
which in fact utilizes a kind of chorus. And uh, it does come out of that background, yes, but I've never used it that I can think of right now until two years ago. Well, that's in a way, yes, he's a, he is a kind of chorus, yes. Yes, the gentleman in the middle there. Uh, the commercialism of Broadway now is uh, done exactly what some of us were saying it was going to do 25 years ago. Namely, it has driven out uh, everything excepting uh, star vehicles uh, and some very few uh, comedies that are more or less light entertainment. Other things find it very difficult, if not impossible, to survive there. And uh, the uh, American clock there, and incidentally, I think it might go on here in not too long a period. I mean, in this theater. Uh, was one of the plays that was intolerable under those circumstances. One of the reasons is that it has a large cast. The costs are uh, astronomical, and you can't manage. It's now impossible, literally. What's happened, though, I have to add, is that the so-called uh, out-of-New-York theater, the theater in other states and areas, the regional theater, has, has had a good growth. It isn't uh, quite a national theater, but it's the closest thing we've managed to create. Uh, it is supported by local communities, by towns, in some cases cities, and it does afford a certain degree of freedom, but not enough. They're still living on the edge of a cliff, and they all feel that they are going under any minute. But at least there is that. In fact, whatever is on Broadway, quite literally speaking, uh, this is not rhetorical, it's actually a fact, has been brought in from those theaters. Nothing has originated on Broadway in years. Uh, that's the sad case. I regret uh, we have to be out of here by 7 o'clock because there is a production to come in. There is a line in Death of a Salesman in which Willie Loman is trying to say how well he's received when he goes places, and he shouts out, explains that he goes into a store and shouts out, Willie Loman is here. Uh, in this, the, the book that you've written about salesmen in Beijing, you say that at the end of your period in China, the only Chinese phrase you could actually come up with was, Arthur Miller is here. <laughs> well, I think you'll have gathered from the reception that you've had here tonight what a genuine pleasure it has been to listen to you and to be able to say, if only for a bare hour, that Arthur Miller was here. Thank you very much.